Well, this morning we continue our trek through the book of Romans. You'll notice this is probably the longest passage I've preached on since coming here to New Hope. Well, we are going to finish up chapter 2 this morning, and then we will begin chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. And at chapter 3, verse 20, really at verse 21, begins sort of the exposition of the glorious good news of the gospel. But Paul is still expounding the bad news, so hold fast hope. The good news is coming. But Romans 2, 12 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. May it wake us up out of our sleepiness, God. May we become spiritually aware of the things that are being said here, the warnings that are given, but also as we will hear the good news that is proclaimed. We pray that this word would fall on fertile soil in our hearts, God, and that you would give the growth, that we might be your people in a more evident and manifest manner, both inwardly and outwardly, all to the glory and praise of your most excellent name. We ask these things in Christ's name. 
and in Christ's name alone. Amen. Have you ever unknowingly misused a word or a phrase? We know that sometimes words can be tricky. You may hear someone say, I don't think children should be disciplined, irregardless of what they're doing. What's the issue here? Irregardless isn't actually a word. Regardless would have been just fine in that sentence. Here's another one. For all intensive purposes. What we mean, though, is for all intents and purposes. Then is sometimes uh, substituted mistakenly for than uh, and vice versa. Inconceivable. In the film The Princess Bride, one of the characters uses this word in a very, very, very wide variety of contexts. Too many, really, so that finally one of the characters bluntly states, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. But other things can be misused besides words, right? And when we get, and when we get to our passage in Romans 2 this morning, we discover that the Jews had gravely misunderstood the purpose of the law and so were misusing it in a variety of embarrassing and self-condemning ways, which the Lord of the church brings to our attention this morning for our own growth in our faith and life. And so we're going to give you three points that kind of revolve around the law and different errors that were made with respect to the law. And so first we'll be looking at the possession of the law, the possession of the law. So the first error of the Jews that the apostle points out is this, that they mistook the possession of the law and the hearing of the law with the doing of the law. He said, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What's he saying here? He's saying that if you don't have the Mosaic law, then you'll be judged apart from that law. But if you do have it, then you will be judged in accordance with it. God will judge justly based on the revelation that you do have of him. So whether you have Moses or not isn't the issue. The issue is whether or not you have fulfilled the law that you have. And the Jewish person would have prided his or herself on hearing the Torah proclaimed in the synagogue and every Sabbath. They would have taken pride in possessing the law, which those dirty Gentiles certainly did not have. We could think of them saying, let the Greeks feed off the crumbs they have from Aristotle and Plato and Cicero. But as for me and my household, we will feast upon the law of Moses. But their folly was, and we looked at this in some detail last week, that they didn't actually keep the law. If they were going to be justified by this law, then they were required to offer personal and perfect obedience to it, which simply didn't happen. Personal obedience as opposed to, meaning they had to personally do it. They couldn't have a mediator in their stead obey. They didn't do that. They did not obey the law perfectly or personally. And one thing we can learn from this for our own Christian walk is that we should view the law of God as more than an artifact, more than just an outward ornament of our Christian profession. And James has something to say about that in James 1, 
Hebrews, then James, right? 22 to 25, uh, there's even some verbal parallels here. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The law for us as Christians is a rule of obedience, and we should, in reliance upon God, the Holy Spirit, strive to frame our lives according to it in response to the sacrificial love of Jesus for us. This is one way that we show our love for Jesus. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. This is in contrast with the Jews whose hearts remained fundamentally unfeeling towards God's statutes. But as the people of God, we obey the law of God in reliance upon God to the glory of God. Then notice in verses 14 through 16, he takes a brief break from talking about the Jews and he takes a moment to talk about the Gentiles. Whereas the Jews will be judged according to the law of Moses and how their works conform to that law, the question arises, how will the Gentiles be judged? Those in Papua New Guinea, uh, when Paul was writing this, for instance, you know, they had never heard the Ten Commandments, so how would God judge them? Wouldn't it be unjust for God to hold these men and women accountable to a standard they had never come into contact with? Well, the Bible has an answer, and the Bible tells us that God has given them a law. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, who do not have the Mosaic law, uh, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, We've got to go back. You know, when God created the world and everything in it, you know, visible and invisible, all in the space of six days and all very good, he created man and woman in his image and likeness. And a feature of who each of us are as image bearers is that God has inscribed his moral law onto our hearts so that by nature, apart from ever Laying our eyes upon the Ten Commandments, we know something of good and evil, of right and wrong. Though we know it imperfectly because of sin, though it may be twisted um, to fit our own agendas because of sin, we still know the substance of it, the essence of it, in our heart of hearts. This moral knowledge is evidenced all around us when we create just laws, when we condemn um, and punish wrongdoing when we praise uprightness, and even when secular parents teach their children not to lie or to teach. This is universal, meaning that no one, even those very far removed from civilized society, is apart from this natural law. And we see that there's this ongoing dialogue that happens um, with those who, or really with all people who have this law. We see the natural law 
presenting to us what is good and evil and our conscience also going to work, approving of us when we do what is right and condemning us when we do what is wrong. In other words, there is an entire moral universe at work in the lives and hearts of all people, whether they are Christian or not. And this is why God is still just in judging people's works, because it's not as if anybody in all the world missed the memo concerning good and evil, right and wrong. The Jews had the Mosaic law, the Gentiles, in other words, everybody else, they had the natural law inscribed upon the heart. Now, I think two applications follow from this. Firstly, let us consider the goodness of our God. God is good in creating all people with an innate capacity to know him. Your neighbor, your classmate, your friends, your enemy, the person who cuts you off on the way home from church. All people know something of God's will. Even the most debased person has not been left without a witness of God's holy and righteous character. So how much more should we who know God's will in a fuller way, knowing his law, but also his gospel, how much more should we treasure the revelation that we have of him in sacred scripture? But secondly, don't ever buy any of the hoopla or the nonsense out there like moral relativism or its offspring that says we simply can't know what is truly good or evil, that it all comes down to a matter of preference, whether that's uh, sort of a Maybe morality comes because of the culture you're in or the country you're in or the place in history that you're in. No, God has spoken, not just in his word, but he has spoken very clearly in the heart and in the conscience of all people. And that is something certain. All people know it. You run into people who say, well, you know, who can know what is good? Who can know what is evil? According to the apostle statements here, Everybody knows what is good and evil. We know it imperfectly. Sin can twist that. But all people have the law of God in some way inscribed on their heart. That doesn't mean they have the ability to fulfill it. But we are all have a knowledge of it and are consequently accountable to it. Well, let's move on. We looked at the possession of the law. Next, we want to look at the contradiction of the law. The second error of the Jews that the apostle points out is this, that while they boasted of being masters of the law, of guiding everyone else in the paths of righteousness, they themselves contradicted the law at every point. They were hypocrites and thus further evidenced themselves as being unable to be justified by the law. Perhaps you know somebody like this. They always take the moral high ground before others. There are those who act like they're better than others, those who are quick to point out the faults of everybody else, but behind closed doors, they are doing the same exact things that they condemn in others. And this is kind of a, just a, something that's been going on for a long time. It's nothing new, nothing new under the sun. And the Lord Jesus has some strong words for the religious leaders of his days who participated in this kind of hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And to top it all off, and this would have really offended the Jewish ear, in verse 23 and 24, we hear, You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So, not only were the Jews here guilty of violating God's law, for example, the sixth and the seventh commandment concerning stealing and adultery, or the seventh and eighth commandment, I'm sorry, seventh being adultery, eighth being to steal. Not only that, but their loose living brought shame and reproach upon the name of the Lord. And the quotation that Paul's quoting from here is from Ezekiel chapter 36, where the nations profaned the name of God because of Israel and their exile, them having been exiled because of their uncleanness and their idolatry. This must have had the surrounding nations think to themselves something like this. What kind of God is this who spits his own people out of their land, the land which he gave to them? So whereas in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, we are called to let our light shine before others that others may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. These are those who, while professing God's name, do deeds that are contrary to God's law and so consequently bring shame and reproach upon God's name. But perhaps at this point you think, Pastor Mike, I am at times hypocritical. At times my actions don't always match up with my profession. So is there any hope for me? And to this I respond, that makes two of us. Uh, but more than that, we must remember that Paul in this context is addressing those who think they can be accepted by the law. And so the entire situation, I believe, is different, I know, is different for those of us who confess and profess Christ. We must not doubt that the obedience of Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. Our faith may be weak, but our Savior is strong. Our obedience might be inconsistent, but our mediator is faithful. We may be untrue to God at times, but God remains true to us, for we are his blood-bought people. And he has promised in the covenant to be God to us and to our children. When we sin, uh, when we're hypocritical, for instance, though we, we need to stop. We need to realize that sin. We need to confess it. We need to confess it to God. And we need to trust his promise that if anyone confesses his or her sins, that, they, uh, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them that's important. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In other words, God loves us despite all of our imperfections. And there is hope for us because there is Christ's mercy for us. No mercy, no hope, but with mercy there is great hope. So if you are doubting today, if you are doubting your standing with God, 
because of a slip-up, because you do not always, by your actions, match up with your profession, my word to you is to, to fret not, and to be not discouraged, and to not look at your own obedience for your assurance and your standing with God, but instead to set your sights and your focus upon Christ and his obedience, because his obedience is sufficient for our salvation. Finally, we get to our, our final point, and that is where we will consider the misuse of the law. So we looked at the, the possession of the law, then we looked at the contradiction of the law, and then finally the misuse of the law. And for this, we'll be especially looking at verses 25 through 29. And so the final error that the apostle points out concerning the Jews is this, that they were trusting in the external sign of God's grace, all the while neglecting the internal reality of that grace. I'll, I'll repeat that. They were trusting in the external sign of God's grace, all the while neglecting the internal reality of that grace. Circumcision uh, was a, a sign of seal of God's gracious covenant, first given to Abraham and then to Moses. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that because when we get to chapter 4, uh, Paul makes uh, a big deal about it and it, its meaning and significance. Uh, so, but briefly, he, God gave it to Abraham and he gave it again to Moses. Uh, and when we give it to Moses, we hear a brief summary in Leviticus um, 12.3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So essentially, that's what circumcision is. And in ancient Israel, this was also it sort of functioned as a sign of entry into the visible covenant community, much like baptism is um, for us here in the New Covenant Church. But circumcision always pointed to God's gracious promises. And it was expected, it was always expected that the covenant child would in time exercise faith in those same promises. But here, the bare sign by itself, apart from any consideration of promise or of faith, was made a condition for salvation, a strict condition for salvation. This is uh, not the only place in the New Testament that speaks about this. This was the drama, some of the drama going on in the church of Galatia, in the letter to Galatians. And it was also a huge reason why the council of Jerusalem met in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, 1, we hear, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what's the apostle, what is the apostle saying in Romans 2? Is he saying that the sacraments, that God's sort of external ordinances are, are vain and empty and meaningless? No, quite the contrary. But what he is saying is that God has no use for empty religion. True religion is a matter of the heart and the life. But false religion is, is simply something that has to do with show. It's when we parade our own righteousness before others and before God to find acceptance or to make ourselves look high and mighty and holy. But God, as we know, is the searcher of hearts and he sees beyond and past all of our masks and our facades. And this is why he says that the individual without the sign of circumcision, but who keeps the law, is better off than the one who, while having circumcision and the law, nonetheless breaks the law. 
God has always been concerned with the heart, with our hearts, with who we are on the inside. Even in the Old Testament, sometimes the Old Testament is characterized as having to do with outward religion and the New Testament with sort of spiritual religion, but it's not necessarily true. In Deuteronomy 10.16, he commanded the Jews, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Well, how was that going for the Jews that Paul was addressing and the Jews that we've been talking about these past few weeks? I just read it in this morning in Acts 7. This was like an abiding issue. Stephen speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I think the point is that something better, something more powerful than human effort was required in order to have one's heart circumcised, in order for us to receive and to enjoy the righteousness that God requires. And so, 20 chapters later in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we hear the Lord promise his people this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may Live. What a glorious promise this is, that the Lord himself, by his own power, by his own might, by his own spirit, and by his own steadfast love, will remove our uncleanness and all of our sin and set us apart as his very own people. The true mark of God's people has nothing to do with ethnic identity. Paul is saying it has nothing to do with that which is merely outward and physical, but it has to do with God's free grace, forgiving us and transforming us so that we might be a people who live for him. And now we, of all people in the world, have the most reason to exclaim with hearts full of joy, with hearts full of grace, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes these things about your word, contained in your word, true to us so that they don't simply just rest upon our, our minds, but they um, find their place in our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to be um, just more and more grateful for that great spiritual renewal you work in our hearts. God, help us to be a people always uh, pursuing greater and greater holiness, all the while realizing that it is the holiness and obedience of Jesus that makes us your people. What a blessed inheritance and gift Jesus is to us. May we treasure Jesus in our hearts, even as Mary treasured the promise concerning Jesus uh, in her heart early in the gospel accounts, which we've been thinking about this last month. We love you, Lord. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.